After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edicts were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of foods and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil, with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take uh, with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. 
Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, at Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Our God and Father, we do thank you that you inspired the the words of Scripture, that you inspired the Bible. We thank you that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We ask now that as we think about it together in Esther 1 and 2, you would please be at work to those ends in each of our lives by your Holy Spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where is God in all of this? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that kind of question. Perhaps after going through a period of suffering or after watching someone you know and love suffer. Perhaps as you reflect on chaotic world events, natural disasters or global pandemics for that matter. It's a question that a lot of us wrestle with, I think, God's hiddenness. Perhaps you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, and, uh, and that's exactly why. If God were so real, why can't I see him? And yet for Christians, rather than our faith in God, meaning that that is no longer an issue for us, If anything, our understanding of God, our understanding of his purposes in the world might actually give us more reason to struggle with God's hiddenness than anyone else. See, we believe in a God who's powerful, who's in control of world events, and a God who has promised to build his church such that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So why on earth when that church looks so weak and might even look as though it's in retreat, is God still so hidden? He's got a vested interest in getting his sleeves rolled up to deal with the problems facing his people, with the threats to the church, doesn't he? And yet the church in the West is in decline. Probably hasn't looked as weak now as it does now as it has, I guess, over the past few hundred years. And what makes matters worse is that by contrast with that, well, the kinds of forces that come into conflict with God's work are so visibly powerful, aren't they? Robin mentioned in his introduction, just think of secularism, for example. It seems to be sweeping away everything in its path in Scotland. And so we might well ask, where on earth is God in all of this? I mean, what's he doing? Have you ever wondered that? I know I have. Well, it might surprise you to know that there is a book in the Bible that addresses exactly that kind of issue. The seeming hiddenness of God and the weakness of his people in a world which is quite the opposite of that, which is very visible 
and very powerful. The book, you may well have guessed by now, is called Esther. We're going to be studying it this evening and over the next three. In the book of Esther, we are dropped right into the middle of the 5th century BC. Jerusalem, which was the home of God's people, had been destroyed. And God's people had been taken hundreds of miles away to live in exile in a place called Babylon, which was one of the great superpower empires of the day. But there's always a bigger fish, isn't there? And uh, so Babylon was swallowed up by another superpower empire called Persia and God's people with it. Seventy years later, God had brought a small band of his people back to the land of Israel to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. We read about that in books like Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai. But in Esther, the camera crew stays behind. We follow the group of people who remain in exile in Persia. They're small and they're weak-looking. And they're living in an empire which is huge and powerful looking. And I left wondering, where on earth is God? What's he doing? And that sense, the sense of God seeming distant, seeming hidden, seeming invisible, well, it's a key theme in the book of Esther. And in fact, it's such a key theme that God is not mentioned once in the whole book. Is that a surprise? There is no mention of God's name in the book of Esther. He is conspicuously absent. And yet it isn't a mistake because the apparent absence of God is exactly the point. Esther shows us that God is active in human history, that he is working for the good of his people even when he's seemingly absent. That's the big, big picture of the book of Esther. Let me say it again. God is active in human history, working for the good of his people, even when he is seemingly absent. And that seeming absence is particularly prominent in these opening two chapters we're going to be thinking about together over the next few minutes. They they basically set the scene for the story that's going to unfold over the coming few weeks. And yet what we're going to see this evening is that that scene is itself part of the story. Let's think about that together under our first heading. I should have mentioned at the outset, there is a, 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 an outline on the service sheet you'll have been handed on your way in this evening. It might find it helpful to have that open in front of you. The first heading on that service sheet, a visible earthly power that is impressive. Now, right out of the gate in Esther chapter one, you're introduced to this guy, Ahasuerus, who's the ruler of Persia. And the author paints a pretty vivid portrait of him. He rules, verse one, from India to Ethiopia. Now, in case your geography isn't up to scratch, I'll be honest, mine isn't either, I looked it up in a commentary, and if you were to plot his kingdom onto a map of the world as it is today, his empire covered the following. Northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, so lots of stands, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Northern Sudan. Give or take a mile or two. And all of that detail, if you notice, it's dropped in as if to make sure that you don't mix them up for another Ahasuerus. Did you see that? Verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, 
not the other one, in case you were wondering. And yet it's really just a bit of a humble brag. It's dropped in, but it is making quite a significant point. The point is, he isn't a tin pot king. He rules over a vast, vast stretch of land. It's impressive, isn't it? And it isn't just impressive geographically, it's impressive economically. We read on into verse 3. He gave a feast for all his officials and servants. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. He throws a six-month party. Now, I like a party as much as the next person, but six months is a bit OTT by anyone's standards. To be honest, I think I'd be doing well to make it to 11 o'clock on the first day. But at the end of the six months, he decides that's not quite enough. I'm going to hold another seven-day event, verse 5, presumably, presumably in case anyone's thinking that he's a wee bit stingy after a six-month party. The venue, we read, is furnished with the best of the best, with white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. And the guests, well, the guests are treated to as much as they want. The only rule is, there is no rule. The picture being painted is lavish. It's rich and it's vivid, isn't it? But it is worth asking, why is it being painted? I mean, it's interesting enough to find out about this guy, Ahasuerus, but do we really need to know about the color scheme, the, the, the white cotton curtains and violet hangings? Wouldn't it be enough just to say, in the days of Ahasuerus, he was very wealthy and very powerful? Well, not quite. I was once watching a television program where there was a teenager who'd just been to visit the Grand Canyon, and he was being interviewed about his experience at the Grand Canyon. He was asked how it was, and he said... It was quite big. Hard work for the interviewer, who decided to press the teenager a little bit further for more detail, and the teenager duly elaborated. It was a big hole in the ground, he said. Clearly a young Shakespeare in the making. Now, what he said was kind of true in as far as it went, and yet when you're standing right next to it, well, a great big hole in the ground doesn't quite cut it, does it? Things like the Grand Canyon make you feel something, don't they? You feel awe at the scale of the canyon itself. And you feel tiny by comparison, don't you? And that's what's being conveyed in these opening verses. Our faces are being rubbed in it to drop us into this 5th century BC world to give us a sense of quite how powerful and impressive this world, not just how impressive it is, but how impressive it feels, impressed by the scale, and at the same time as feeling absolutely tiny ourselves. It is an earthly, visible power that is impressive. And the reason I think it helps for us to feel that is that it heightens the stakes heightens the stakes when that extraordinary, impressive power is used for dark and oppressive purposes. That's our next point this evening, a visible earthly power that is oppressive. And now, in our house, we've got a number of children's Bibles, and I looked up a couple of them over the past week 
just to see what they said about the, the story of Esther. And in each of them, Esther reads like a feel-good, rags-to-riches kind of story. It, it's a bit like an ancient version of Oliver Twist. That might be your impression of the book of Esther if you've ever read it before. And yet the reality is quite different than that. It's actually quite a seedy story in some ways. A story of abuse and exploitation. Just look at chapter 1, verse 10 and following. After this after party, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, after he drunk too much, he sends for his wife, Queen Vashti. Why? Well, not because he missed her or because he wanted to spend time with her or he wanted to tell her how much he loved her. Verse 11, because he wanted to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. For the most powerful man in the world who owns so very much, well, his wife is treated as just another possession. And if things start badly, they don't get much better. Read on into the beginning of chapter two. The king starts to, to, to flex his muscles, to use his immense power to hold what might initially sound like a beauty pageant, but is in actual fact a human trafficking network. Virgins from all over the empire are selected. They don't volunteer, they're selected. And they're brought to the capital of the empire, Susa. There they're given treatments over the course of 12 months before being forced to compete with one another in Ahasuerus's bed. It's grim, isn't it? Terrific. And Robin mentioned a few minutes ago, that for some tuning in, this kind of exploitation, this kind of misuse of authority, well, it may well be painfully and upsettingly close to home with your own experience. So it is worth repeating what Robin mentioned. If that is you, then please speak about it if you feel able. Pray with people about it if you're able. There are people in Chalmers who'd be very, very willing to do that with you. Please get in touch with Robin or with Sally if you feel able to chat through those things with us. We'd really be pleased to be able to help if we can. The picture here is horrific. It is exploitative. And it is worth saying that whilst lots of the details given over to, to this contest, there are other indications that the oppression isn't just gender-based. It isn't just men oppressing women. Notice back in chapter 1 and verse 10, Ahasuerus sends seven eunuchs to go and deliver his message to Queen Vashti. Eunuchs, what were they? Well, they were men who'd been emasculated so they could serve the king without posing any threat to him. Sending seven might seem like overkill. They're just delivering a simple message. And it is overkill, but that's the point. You see, Ahasuerus is sending seven possessions, his eunuchs, to go and fetch another of what he thinks are a possession, his wife. See the picture being painted? It's of dark and oppressive youth of this, uh, use of this impressive earthly power. And yet whilst all people are vulnerable to that in this kingdom, there's also an indicator that God's people are particularly vulnerable. Where did I get that from? We'll just look again at chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, in the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, what we're going to see over the course of the next 
uh, well, this Sunday and the next three Sundays, is that throughout the book of Esther, the vehicle for communicating God's purposes in all of this mess are his covenant people, the Jews. And our first indication, uh, introduction to them is to this man named Mordecai, and immediately what we're told about him firmly establishes his place and the place of all of God's people in this empire world order. Just read again verse 6 of chapter 2, and keep your eyes peeled for the repeated word as I read verse 6 again. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Carried, carried, carried. Mordecai isn't someone who's moved to Persia in search of a better life for himself or his family. He's part of an exiled people who themselves hadn't decided to move to Babylon or Persia at all, who were carried here at the whim of a stronger power. And Mordecai isn't alone. In verse 7, we meet his cousin. Hadassah is her Jewish name, and Esther, her Persian one. She's an orphan. She's been raised by Mordecai. And fairly quickly after being introduced to her, we see that Esther is one of those taken by the king's people trafficking initiative, verse 7. And so we see immediately that she is every bit as much under the oppressive hand of the power of Persia as anyone else. And yet for her, well, things are just a little bit worse. Chapter 2, verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. That same detail we did again, chapter 2, verse 20. Now, there's no explicit comment or narration made on that detail about why she'd kept her background quiet. But the implication, certainly as Esther starts to unfold, is that, well, being open about that kind of stuff would disadvantage her. There's something dangerous about being associated with God's people. That's the inference. See what's being described in in vivid technicolor in these two chapters. It's a balance of power. Extraordinary earthly power. Vivid, lush, earthly power being used to oppress, to oppress people generally and to oppress God's people in particular. That's what's going on. Now, I'm conscious that that all might feel quite remote for us in 21st century Scotland. We're intuitively anti-authoritarian, aren't we? We we don't like being told what to do at the best of times. And if someone like Ahasuerus, well, if he was in power, he wouldn't last five minutes before he was kicked out. And yet there are powers in our world that are every bit as impressive and every bit as oppressive as this one. And in fact, that we might not immediately be able to put our finger on what they are might well mean that they're all the more dangerous. Over the past few weeks, I've spoken to four different people, all Christians working in different industries, each of whom have expressed serious concerns about their work, in particular concerns about the things they are being asked to do in order to comply with their employer's policies and expectations of them. All of those policies and expectations, though different, they're based on a particular worldview that each of them feel very uncomfortable with as Christians. Let me give you a couple of examples. One Christian person involved in education who's been asked to teach that all religions lead to the same place. And so she's been asked to teach. Another individual who works for a company who are encouraging all of their employees to change their email footers 
What's so big about that? Well, the reason for changing the email footer is to demonstrate support for a particular understanding of gender and sexuality, an understanding that he feels he just can't subscribe to as a Christian. Now, who holds the balance of power in those situations? In one sense, the employers, isn't it? Certainly not the employee. They hold the keys to a job, to a livelihood, to a reputation. And yet another level, even the employers are often just trying to keep up with expectations from a wider culture that's being set for them. And yet the reality is, wherever the power does seem to lie, it's definitely clear where it doesn't lie. With God's people. We might not live under the thumb of a despotic emperor, but we are, I would argue, under the thumb of a different kind of earthly power. And as Christians wrestle with how to handle those kinds of complex situations, as well as just trying to work out what the best thing to do is, we might well ask ourselves, where on earth is God in all of that? This is meant to be his world. We are meant to be his creatures. I'm meant to be trying to be faithful to him, and I cannot see his hand or dominance. All I can see is dominant earthly powers right in front of my eyes getting more and more and more dominant. Where on earth is he? Esther 1 and 2, well, they're closer to home than we might think. And yet, as well as, as describing things as they really are, they also show that things aren't all as they might seem. What do I mean? Well, let's think about that under our next heading. A visible earthly power that is limited. Now, North Korea is perceived to be one of the most tightly controlled and oppressive societies in the world today. And much of that control is maintained by cult leadership, leadership of the Kim dynasty, the family of leaders who've ruled there for nigh on 60 years. And yet sometimes the veil slips a little. 1994, such a slip happened. It was widely reported by North Korean media that the then supreme leader, Kim Jong-il, had played his first and only ever round of golf, 18 holes he'd played, and he'd rather taken to it, so the report went. So much so that in his one and only round of golf, he managed to make 11 holes in one. Did you really? See, sometimes the best way to put kind of oppressive human power in its place is with parody. It's with satire. It's with subversion. Kim's a great example of that, and it just so happens that he did the job of satire for us, didn't he? And we see something similar happening in Esther chapters 1 and 2. I wonder if you noticed it. We've been introduced to this man of extraordinary power and control who uses that power to dreadful and oppressive effect. And yet his power, invincible as it looks, is limited. Chapter 1, verse 12. He's commanded his beautiful Queen Vashti to come and parade before him and his drunken pals. Verse 12. But Vashti refused to come at the king's command. And the cheer goes up. Good on you, Queen Vashti. And yet the point we're meant to take, I think, isn't quite so much how great Vashti is, standing up to a misogynistic man. I think the point we're meant to take is that this misogynistic man, who rules vast swathes of the known world, cannot bend a single human will. 
the veil of this impressive and oppressive earthly power starts to slip a little, doesn't it? And it slips further as things unfold. Verse 13, he calls together his brain trust, his council of trusted advisors to ask what he should do. And, well, frankly, they do an excellent job of turning a molehill into a certified mountain. Not only has Vashti done wrong by the king, they say, but also against all his officials. And in fact, not even just them, all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. She's threatened social order. The whole empire is going to crumble, they say. What to do? Verse 19, if you really want to protect your reputation after this bust-up, almighty Ahasuerus, what you really need to do is send out a decree, a pronouncement. Send it to all 127 provinces in the language of every province. Tell them exactly what's happened here. Tell them exactly what Vashti has done. Now, it's ridiculous. It's over the top. And do you think it's going to achieve its objective? Of course it isn't. Instead of, of doing what it's meant to, of protecting the king's bruised reputation, it's going to do exactly the opposite. It's going to turn a relatively low-key marital dispute into a matter of global public policy. You see what's going on? It's all very subversive. We're being given all of that detail because it has much the same effect as Kim Jong-il trying to pass himself off as Phil Mickelson. It's the kind of self-seriousness of the overreaching that's just laughable. Ahasuerus, despite the extraordinary power that he really does wield and wields ruthlessly, well, he isn't as powerful as he might think. His power is limited. And there is a hint, just a hint at this stage, that something, or indeed someone else, is at work behind the scenes. We'll think about that under our last heading this evening, an unseen power that's nonetheless at work. Now, having begun with the pomp and the power of Persia and the weakness and fragility of God's people in the face of that, just notice how these two chapters end. We have Esther, this, this orphaned Jew. Well, she wins this horrific contest, doesn't she? She gains favor in the sight of everyone. And by chapter 2, verse 17, one of God's people, God's vulnerable people, has risen to the position of Queen of Persia. It's quite the turnaround. And that isn't all. There's this odd little story at the end of chapter 2, isn't there? Verses 19 to 23. Mordecai overhears a plot. Two men, the wonderfully named Big Than and Teresh, they start plotting to kill the king. And it all goes about Guy Fawkes, doesn't it? Mordecai foils the plot, verse 22. Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus does what Ahasuerus does. He has the two men killed. And all of that, including Mordecai's part in it, verse 23, is written down. Written down, not just anywhere, but in official records, and stored away for another day. And nothing further is said about it at this stage. We'll see how that comes up again later in the story. And yet, whilst it isn't painted for us fully quite yet, we can just start to see the faint outline of a hidden hand at work, can't we? Even in the midst of this seemingly overwhelming human power, well, there's another hand at work. And as we're going to see over the coming weeks, that hand is the hand of the covenant God. 
He is working out his purposes through and for his people. Despite how it may seem. Now, what are we meant to do with all of that? Well, it is important, I think, to be really clear on what we're not meant to do. Some of you may have been familiar with the, the, the book of Daniel in the Bible and heard the song, Dare to Be a Daniel. Whether that's the right way to apply the book of Daniel is another matter. I don't think it really is. But one thing we're definitely not being encouraged to do is to dare to be an Esther, certainly not in chapters 1 and 2. Why did I say that? Well, she kept quiet about being one of God's people, didn't she? And we might therefore think that the moral of Esther 1 and 2 is that as Christians, we should just keep quiet about our faith. Do whatever we need to do to get to the top, because then we're really able to influence things. Wouldn't that be quite a comfortable application to make? And yet it isn't the message of Esther at all. The narrator doesn't comment on her conduct through the chapter and whether it was right or wrong. And yet we we did see this morning in Luke chapter 6, didn't we, that faithfully following Jesus involves telling people about him and will bring a cost. And so the message of Esther is definitely not do what Esther did. In fact, these chapters, I don't think, primarily serve to tell us what to do in the first instance. I think instead they serve to tell us what to think. See, Esther being vulnerable, well, she wasn't the only one, was she? All of God's people were vulnerable at this time. Remember when this is taking place, they're either in exile in Persia, this tiny group of people in this mighty and powerful land, or they'd return to Jerusalem to rebuild this pretty, pathetic, now-looking city. How do you reckon they felt in the midst of that? They were pretty weak. Pretty fragile. And you'd better believe they're wondering what on earth God's up to and why he seems so quiet. And isn't that exactly how we sometimes feel as Christians in an increasingly secular world? Where on earth is God? And why is he being so quiet? And so what we're meant to take from Esther 1 and 2 is this. Even though he doesn't seem to be in the picture at all, the covenant God is still at work. He is still committed to keeping and to guarding his people, even when we can't see it. So you can trust him. You can trust him. Now that inference remains an inference in chapters one and two. It isn't in our face. But in some ways, I was thinking about it this week, in some ways that makes it all the more helpful. Makes it all the more true to life, to each of our experiences. Because isn't that just like our experience? We don't have a narrator telling us in day-to-day life exactly what God is doing around and about us or in a broader scene in Scotland, the UK, or the world. We don't always see that he's advancing his kingdom. It isn't always clear that he's building his church. And so we might well behave and think as though God has ceased to function as God. We might well cease to lose confidence in him. And all that is left are the earthly powers that are so impressive. And yet Esther serves to subvert that conclusion. Hence, at those powers not being quite as invincible as they might look. Or more to the fact, not quite as invincible as they might feel. Because they do feel invincible. And they hint at a God who is big enough to use, well, seemingly insignificant people like Esther through seemingly random means to bring about his ultimate purposes for his people. 
And in fact, it shouldn't come as a surprise that that's how he might operate. He used a virgin in the first century Palestine to achieve an extraordinary act of revelation, to become human flesh and bone. He achieved the greatest rescue in human history, rescuing all who trust in him from sin, judgment, and death by means of a crooked sham trial and a Roman cross. That's our God. So just because you can't see him in the grand scale of public or political life in Scotland, or just because you can't see him in the ins and outs of your own life as you live as an exile, a stranger in a foreign land, do not think that he isn't there. Because he is. The hand of God might well seem hidden to us. But it's hinted at here and it's going to become clearer in the weeks to come. Even when we cannot see him, this God is still the one who really rules the world. And we can trust him to do that. Let's pray to him now. Our God and Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are the God of all things. That you spoke the world into existence. That you sustain it even today by the word of your power. And yet we acknowledge before you now that the other powers can seem so much more real, more tangible, and therefore more powerful to us as we look at the world we live in. Father, we thank you so very much for the reminder in the book of Esther that they are not. They are not more powerful than you. And we pray that for those of us who are Christians, who are struggling with your seeming hiddenness, you would enable us to trust that to be true. To trust that you are at work, even when we can't see how or why. And for those of us who wouldn't describe ourselves as Christians, we do ask that you'd at least provoke some of us to ask questions of the world we live in. It looks secure, it looks strong, it looks unassailable. And yet we ask this evening you would allow us to ask whether that really is the case. Or whether there might be another hidden hand. The hand of a sovereign God ruling and reigning, even when we can't see him. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake.